Ernie Barrett, who led our song just a moment ago, is a longstanding member of the Bear Valley Congregation, former elder with the Bear Valley Congregation, and uh, Daniel Besterwich is uh, a present student within the program, and uh, thank them very much for, for their work overall. Uh, Ernie is uh, ex-military, I'm ex-military, and Mike Green that I'm going to introduce is ex-military. You may think that I have a little bit of a bias uh, concerning ex-military, and I do. The first work that I ever did, I attended Sunset School of Preaching back in the early days of Sunset School of Preaching, and the first work I went into was in Minot, North Dakota, and that was a military congregation, and I grew very quickly to love military congregations. And so uh, it's with a, a great deal of uh, pleasure that I introduce uh, Mike Green. I'm going to read a little bit about Mike, and then I'll just say a few things and not try to embarrass him too greatly. Mike is the preacher for the Cawson Street Church of Christ in Hopewell, Virginia, where he's ministered since 2017. Previously, he served with Churches of Christ in Washington, Florida, and Kentucky. He is a 2008 graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute of Denver. In addition, he holds an MA in New Testament. He and his wife, Natalie, have been married 21 years, have six children. Uh, I had Mike as a, as a student in school, and uh, I have nothing against uh, younger students coming to school, but if I could have a class of all ex-military, I would just really love it because uh, there are things that uh, a fellow, when he's been in the military, uh, has a certain maturity about himself. If I were to say to my uh, freshman class, do you know what hospital corners are? They wouldn't have any idea, but Mike knows exactly, and anybody who's been in the military knows exactly what a hospital corner is when you're making up a bunk, because that's what you learn very quickly. But Mike is just a, a, a neat guy, and uh, have always enjoyed having conversations with him, and he's a, a fine Christian leader and uh, one who is determined to serve the Lord very diligently. So it's with a great deal of pleasure that I introduce you to Mike Green. Preach the word, brother. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate you so much, brother. I just appreciate so much the relationships that I have uh, just shared. It's just so great to grab some hugs. You know, I saw some guys last night that I hadn't seen for years and years. And uh, man, that feels good. Feels good. I was reading, and, and you've probably read this guy, uh, Dave Louis Lamour. In his Sackett series, he talked about, uh, in one of the books, he talked about, you know, a man doesn't sow roots somewhere and leave on somewhere else without leaving a part of him where he was at. And that's me. A part of me will always be in Denver. You know, there's such memorable experiences of being here and being in this, this building. Uh, it just gives me a little bit of nostalgia every time I come back. Although I feel like coming back, my story was the antithesis to Brother Dustin's arriving at the airport. If his was full of driving off in a, in a Dodge Challenger, mine started with two and a half hours waiting for a rental car. And so I, I depart the rental car counter, Dustin, and I go out there to get my car. You know, I've, I've got signed for it, and they said, we don't have a car. 
I, I just left the counter. Where's my car? And they said, well, you got to wait for somebody to return one in. And when they came back, Dustin, it was a nice little Nissan Sentra, I think is what it is, as I'm driving around these days. So if you want to swap Challenger for Sentra, I'd be much happier to drive that around in my time here. Um, because of my delay, though, as I was arriving at the church building last night, the first word that I heard when I came into the auditorium was Bill Stewart. And I wanted to take just a second of, of my time to offer my own tribute to Bill Stewart. Uh, Bill transformed my life in some very impactful ways. I'll tell you a real quick story. It's about my first baptism. And I was a, a young military man. I'd already made the decision to get out of the military. So we're going back to April 2003, I guess it was. And it's at the spiritual growth workshop that they used to have up in Tacoma, Washington. And me and Jeremy Jackson, who was an evangelist at the church there at the time, we'd had a Bible study with a, a second lieutenant and his wife. Now, you've got to picture this. His wife is about 4 foot 10, and he's about 6 foot 9. And so we get to the church building that night, and I've got this full suit on, and, 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 and they have decided to get baptized. And right before they go down into the baptistry, the, the lady says, can we get baptized at the same time? And I'm just 21 years old. I'm following Jeremy's lead. I said, is that okay? And he said, sure, why not? And so all four of us kind of squeeze into this baptistry. And Jeremy so kindly says, you get the big guy for your first baptism. And, and, and I remember taking this big second lieutenant who's he's towering up, up over me right here. And, and as I baptize him, punk, right his head goes right on the baptistry. I just smacked his head. And then as I plunge him down to the waters, I'm nervous as all get out. I mean, I'm so nervous to, to get this wrong that I, I push him down so hard, the waders come unbuckled, and I zoosh, pull up about half the baptistry. So I'm soaked from the chest down, literally, and, and this guy's got a knot on the back of his head. And then I'm sitting there throughout that lecture, <laughs> shivering, you know, because everything all the way down to my underwear is soaking wet. And... and and I see this guy at the end of the lecture coming to me. I promise Bill Stewart comes into this, okay? I, I see this guy coming to me afterwards with Jeremy. And, and this lieutenant says, my elbow never went under. And I looked at Jeremy and said, well, what do you do about that? And Jeremy says, you got to do it again. So then I'm thinking, all right. Let's get this guy to the bottom of the baptistry. So I get back into the water there, and, and, and I take this second lieutenant, same thing all over again, all the way down. The waiters come undone again. I pull up the baptistry again. And as I'm walking away thinking about this first baptism experience, Bill Stewart comes over to me, and he puts his finger right on my chest, and he says, you have to come to Bear Valley. And I said, okay. And I did. You know, nine months later, you know, my son is five weeks old. I show up, Bill and Pam, they um, let us stay with them. It was three years later, I picked up a phone call, and Bill was on the other end, and he said, hey, I know you've been thinking about planting a church in Washington State. Give these people in West Texas a call. And, and we left Florida and moved all the way up to Washington State where we planted a church. And so in, in a very real way, Bill changed the trajectory of my life, and I will never forget that. You know, I'll never forget the impact that those relationships with men like Bill and Dave, Warren, and others 
had. And, and to be honest with you, Dave, at this point in my ministry, it's really just now coming to fruition, those lessons that I learned 20 years ago. You know, I got a chance to meet Daniel, and my wife and I have had a chance to, to, meet Dan, to uh, support Daniel in his schooling here. And that's a blessing in and of itself being here this week. But God's providence is truly an amazing thing. That 20 years ago, when all of this was happening, he was setting me up for the challenges and the things that I would face right now. And that's just a wonderful thing. Let's lean into our text, though, with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and I thank you so much, Father, for this lectureship. I pray that you'll bless the work of the Bear Valley Bible Institute in the future the way that you have in the past. Father, as we come into this text, Father, we, we seek to learn its contents. We, we seek to apply it to our lives, and as those who preach and teach and lead in your church, let us learn from the Apostle Paul's example, how he dealt with this congregation, how he engaged these people, Father. Thank you for your scriptures, which give us a pattern. They give us a, a model to mold not only our own lives after, but to mold our preaching and teaching ministry after. We thank you, Father, and as we go through this text today, we pray that we draw out of it what your Holy Spirit poured into it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's grab our Bibles this morning, and let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Man, J Dustin got me fired up. Appreciate his passion so much. I always have. And so let's get into the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let me, as you're turning over there, tell you kind of something that I was thinking about as I was putting this lesson together. I was taking a class, and as a part of this class, they asked me to take the Clifton Strengths Assessment. Any of you ever heard of that before? Okay, I'm seeing some hands. All right, so there's basically 34 areas broken out over four different quadrants. And basically, it's, it's by the people that do Gallup, right? And, and so it's used in, in a broad context, not just in ministry. Um, and, and it analyzes you as a person. It's one of these temperament analysis, and it scores you in your five top strengths. And some of them are no brainers to me. You know, I'm a learner, I'm a strategic thinker. Uh, um, uh, I forget the other two, but the one that stuck out to me that really I didn't grasp at first was it says you are one who thinks contextually. I'm like, well, duh, I'm a preacher. Isn't that what we all do, right? But that's not how they were using it. You know, when I say that I'm thinking contextually, we're usually thinking about, you know, looking at the text of Scripture that we're studying and, and locating it as it pertains to the other Scriptures that's around it. But when I read through this analysis and I had to sit down with this coach and she was explaining to me, here's what it really means. People exceptionally talented in the context theme enjoy thinking about the past. They understand the present by researching its history. I said, okay, I see that. I know Dave's like that too. He likes to think about history, and I like to read about history. But as it pertains to, you know, the problems, the church that I'm at right now has been in existence since 1942. There's a lot of history there. And as I've engaged some of the issues and, so, and thought about how to move forward in the future, one of the things that I found myself doing is thinking about the past and asking questions of members about the past. How did we arrive at this place and how did that happen? Thinking contextually. And I want to use that as a lead-in to what I see the Apostle Paul doing in the assigned text that I've been given, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 through 13. Learning from history a divine warning where Paul is essentially going to refer back to the Old Testament scriptures and he's going to contextualize them. 
Meaning he's going to look at the lessons that ancient Israel, or rather the experiences of ancient Israel, and he's going to apply those to the problems that the Corinthian church were facing. And so there's really two questions. Wayne, my clicker's not working, brother. There we go. There's really two questions that I want us to think about as we try to frame uh, the next 30 minutes of this discussion. And the first one on the screen here is, how does the experience of ancient Israel's exodus and wilderness wandering speak to the struggle in Corinth over meat sacrificed to idols? Let's think about that as we get into this text. And the second one is this. How does the Apostle Paul's contextualizing, you understand now how I'm using that word. It's going to come up multiple times in this lesson. How does the Apostle Paul's contextualizing of Israel's past provide a paradigm for applying the Old Testament to contemporary problems facing Christians today? And so let's allow those two questions there to really frame in our discussion over the next number of minutes. Now let's go to our text, okay? Let's go to our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and I don't want you to forget, and I know uh, Brother Dan Owen did this last night, Grady did a good job with this in his message this morning at the 8 o'clock hour, really helping us to understand the full picture of what Paul is doing. And I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a second. We've got to start there because I, I really see the first two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 as Paul's way of framing in the discussion over the next six chapters. He says there in chapter 8, as he begins answering the question regarding things sacrificed to idols, he says, we know that we all have knowledge. Then here it is. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Now put your finger right there. Now flip over to, to the end of my section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at what he says in verse 12. He's going to basically say the same thing as he said in 8.2. He's going to say it again in 10 and verse 12, but in a different way. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So if we go back to Paul leading into this problem of dealing with meat sacrificed to idols, it really comes down to the whole problem that Brother Dan was getting into in the book of Corinthians. They had this self-inflation problem. Looking at themselves as more important than they really were. They were relying on human wisdom and human judgment. And quite frankly, it was killing them. It was dividing this new church there in Corinth. They were arrogant. And Paul says, arrogance like that, human wisdom and human judgment like that tears down, but I'll show you a better way. Love edifies. And so the, the contrast is stark, right? Are we going to be characterized as God's people, as those who rely on human judgment and human arrogance? Or are we going to walk in the way of love, which is the way of Christ? Who said we're going to be known by our love. And so Paul is going to set this whole section up in chapter 8 with the idea of which one's it going to be. Are you going to be unified or are you going to be divided? And at that point, they were divided. You could see it in the cliques. You could see it in the way they worshipped. And we're about to get into that in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. But as he gets into the problem, the question that they had there, he, he really frames the question in chapter 8 going all the way down through verse 13. 
And then this morning in the lessons that we looked at, first with Brother Grady and then with Brother Dustin, Paul's going to use himself as an example. As an example of what I call others above self living. Being a servant, I think, was the word that Brother Dustin used. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for just a second, and I think we had this lesson last night, Paul's first going to say this in verse 6, where he says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself. And then if you drop down to verse 16, he's going to say, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. So none of us should be surprised that as Paul starts to talk about the meat sacrifice to idols question that was a problem there in Corinth, that he goes to him as an example because we've already seen that earlier in the book. But really, what is he getting at there in chapter 9? He's getting at the example that he set of being an others above self person. One who was willing to set aside himself for the sake of others, to save souls, as he would say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's not the last time he's going to say that. Skip over to chapter 11 and verse 1 and notice here. He's going to say here, really, at the end or the conclusion of this question of eating meat, sacrifice to idols, he's going to say this again, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And so Paul sets himself as an example and others that ministered with him. And he says, look at our attitude. We walked the way of love among you. We strove in every way to work among you in a way to, as to serve your best interest. And then as we get down to chapter 10 and verse 1, the beginning of my section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Can I get my clicker back? There we go. <laughs> when we get down to chapter 10 and verse 1, we, we really start to see the first of what I'd like to say are three points that we can draw out from this text, right? We've got to have points, somebody said last night. And the first point that I, I really see in this text is we see a voice from the past, Scripture from a Christ-centered perspective. And Paul frames this using this phrase right here, do not be ignorant or unaware. Do you see it there in your text in chapter 10 and verse 1? He says, for I do not want you to be unaware. Now, I think when Paul uses this phrase, what he intends for us to see is they were being ignorant. They were being unaware. They were forgetting the example that they had. Here's a few other places that he uses this text. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 where he says, Or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience? Not knowing, there's the expression again, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Again, are, are you being ignorant of these things? Or in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, or do you not know, there's that word again, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Again, a group of people who were forgetting, they were willfully being ignorant of something. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as, so do, as do the rest who have no hope. And so Paul's going to use this particular phrase right here to bring up something that I feel like they were neglecting. They were neglecting an example that was present in the Old Testament scriptures that provides an answer to the problem that they were facing. When we think about this contextualizing of the Old Testament, 
We're talking about looking at the experiences of ancient Israel and applying them to the contemporary setting there in Corinth. But if we think about this process of contextualizing, there's actually some pretty good Old Testament examples where Moses and others would use this process of looking at Israel's history and their past to make a point about the present. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Song of Moses. There at the end of Moses' really long sermon there in Deuteronomy, he has this great song, and that song recounts the experiences of ancient Israel and the things that they went through. And he wants them to learn from that. He says, look back to your ancestors. Look back to the generation of people that were unfaithful to God and learn something from that. If you go to the Psalms, Psalm 78, which is a song of Asaph, he basically does the same thing. He recounts all of ancient Israel's history going all the way up to David, and he wants them to learn something. Learn from the example of ancient Israel so that you don't repeat the same mistakes that they repeated. Or if you go over to Acts chapter 7 in the sermon of Stephen, that's exactly what Brother Stephen did. He went all the way back to Israel's history at the very beginning, and he walks them through this oral history of of Israel. And he says, stop being the same people that your ancestors were. And of course, we know how that ended. Stephen was killed. But as I look at this particular text, and as we get into the next couple of verses, really two through five, Paul's going to take it to another level. Paul's going to give us a Christ-centered contextualizing of the Old Testament. Let's read 2 through 5, and then we'll go back and talk about it a little bit. He's going to say there, beginning in in verse 1, after that phrase we, we looked at, Brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Then verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And so as we get into this uh, particular point of Paul uh, giving us a Christ-centered contextualizing of the Old Testament, we think about this passage from Luke chapter 25. And if you really go back to verse 44, Jesus says there that there are all of those things which had been written in, in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms about him needed to be fulfilled. And then notice, he opened their minds to the scriptures. That is so important for us to remember. When we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we see Paul giving us this Christ-centered contextualization of an Old Testament passage, Brethren, these folks had Jesus reveal to him, to them, the things of the Old Testament that were written about him. They just weren't allegorizing. That, you know, they weren't reaching back into the Old Testament and ripping things out of their context and saying, well, this actually was about Jesus. They had Jesus opening their mind to the Scriptures. And we say, well, wait a second, Mike. Paul wasn't there. Well, you think about Galatians chapter 1 and verse 12 where Paul is recounting how he received the gospel. And he says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus also came to the Apostle Paul and gave him this understanding of this Christ centered approach to the Old Testament. But really, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for a second. Turn in your Bible over there, just a few pages if you're already in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 
to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's too much to put on the screen. This is such an important passage as we try to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament and really apply it in a contemporary context. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul there says, Therefore, having such hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. Do you see that there? That veil, uh, that inability to see Jesus in the Old Testament is removed when someone becomes a Christian. Verse 15, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. So if you think about that particular passage, he's saying that that was the issues that the Jews had, right? They couldn't see how God was working through Israel. They couldn't see Jesus in the Old Testament. And Paul says that when people became Christians, when they turned to Christ, that veil was taken away. They were able to see that, right? Like Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch. Who's he talking about? Himself or someone else? And beginning in that passage, Isaiah 53, Philip taught him about Jesus. And he was able to see Jesus through those Old Testament passages, right? And then he saw those waters and he said, "Ah, what prevents me from being baptized, right? And so we start to understand this Christ-centered contextualizing of the Old Testament scriptures. And if you get down to the Corinthians, this is the issue. Paul said earlier in the book, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The ability to see Jesus, not just in the gospel account and in his life, but to see how Jesus was present in the Old Testament is going to form Paul's third argument to this question about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And here's what it comes down to, the second point. There's a warning if you listen to ancient Israel's history. There's a warning from the past, and this is the warning. All shared, but many fell. All shared, but many fell. If you look at the particular text here, we're going to see five occurrences of the word all. Do you see it there beginning in verse 1? He says, all were under the cloud. All were under the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. And so if you want to flip back and forth at a later time, you can. But Paul is being very meticulous in connecting in a Christ-centered way the events of Exodus chapters 13 through 17 
And, and he's going to say these events that happened to them forms an example for you, if you're willing to listen. The first occurrence of all brings us to a Christ-centered understanding of the Exodus events which is recorded there in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. Notice how Paul is very careful to use the word baptized in the sea. Connecting, correlating Christian baptism with the children of Israel with that Red Sea experience as they passed through the Red Sea. He goes on to the next section here. The fourth occurrence of all brings us to a Christ-centered understanding of the events of Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, where it says all ate the same spiritual food. And if you go back to Exodus chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 16, you're going to see that that is the event of the manna that was given from heaven. Do you remember Jesus over there in John chapter 6? When they were talking about Moses giving a sign from heaven, clearly talking about the manna that came from heaven. And do you remember Jesus correlating himself back to that event when he said there in John chapter 6 and verse 35 I am the bread of life in that particular context and then if you go down to this last occurrence the final occurrence it brings us to the events of Exodus chapter 17 where Moses struck the rock and water came out from the rock and Paul is even more specific here isn't he I think there's an illusion when we look at the word baptism, and there's an illusion when we look at the use of the term spiritual food in the verses 2 and 3 to this Christ-centered approach. But if you look at verse 4, Paul is very specific. He says, all drank the same spiritual drink. All were drinking from the same spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. You see, okay, I see what Paul is doing here, but what's the point? How does this Christ-centered approach to looking at this Old Testament example speak any kind of relevance to the issue that they were having there in Corinth over eating meat sacrificed to idols? Well, let's think about this. Paul's conclusion is this. Even though Christ was with them in these ways, with most of them, God was not pleased. Thus, the events of the wilderness wandering. And if you take that one step forward, here's the point. The Israelites had the same source of spiritual strength as the Corinthians, even Christ. And yet many of them fell to idolatry. See, that's the point, isn't it? If they could just look back to Israel's example, not only did they have God's presence, they even had Christ, Paul says, and yet they still fell. And that's the warning, isn't it, for the Corinthians? Just because you have Christ, just because he's present in your assemblies, just because he's present in the Lord's Supper, doesn't make you immune to falling. It doesn't make you immune to idolatry. And that leads me to my final point in the lesson this morning. An example from the past. Paul's going to say, these things happened as an example. Twice in a few verses, we're going to find that exact phrase. Verse 6, he says, Now these things happen as an example for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. And then if you drop down to verse 11, Now these things happen to them as an example. And that's the point that he's making here. 
If you were careful to not remember or to not forget those events of Israel, you will see that the scriptures speak to this problem that you're having in the Old Testament. In fact, the word tupos or tupos, depending on how you want to pronounce your Omicron right, is, is significant, I think. Especially when you think about it as it relates to the original meaning of this particular word. It carried with it that idea of, you know, when something is struck, making an impression upon the thing that is struck, right? A few weeks ago, I had a friend of mine um, who came and he, he brought some leather for the kids. And I had fun just watching out the, the window as he was working with the kids. And one of my sons took a stylus and he put it there on that leather and he, on that leather and he took his hammer and ping! And it left an impression into that leather, right? A pattern. You're not going to just remove that pattern from that leather. It's going to be there to stay. That's what that word carries with it, right? This idea of something being an example. And that's an important word elsewhere in the New Testament, right? Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 6, there towards the middle of the chapter, you know, I thank God that even though you were evil, you became obedient to the heart, to that pattern of teaching, he's going to say. Or he's going to tell Timothy over in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 to retain the pattern, the example of sound words. And so Paul's going to say here with this Old Testament example of Israel, these things form an example, a model for you to follow there. And so if you think about these, uh, what he says here, the thing you're being ignorant about has direct relevance to the problem that you're dealing with, right? That's the importance of, of looking at this particular word. And further, Paul's going to say there that these things were written with an eschatological slant, right? That Christ, right, if you could jump down to verse um, Verse 11, if you would. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Paul's going to say a similar thing in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Interestingly, dealing with the same problem there with the church in Rome. And so what follows is this paradigm, this example that Paul has given them, which is sort of a formative pattern for them to follow. And again, he's going to reach back into the Old Testament and pull out these examples. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 7, this has direct reference to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, where he says, don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it was written. And then a direct quotation from that Old Testament passage. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And then if you think about chapter 10 and verse 8, it has... Direct reference to Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, where it says, Nor let us try the Lord, uh, rather, verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Or if you think about chapter 10 and verse 9, it could have reference to any number of passages, such as Numbers 21, 5 through 6, Deuteronomy 6, 16, or Psalm 78, verse 18, all of which refer to Israel grumbling against the Lord, right? Trying the Lord. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, right? Or verse 10, rather, about the grumbling. 10.10 uh, 10 likely has reference to Exodus 15.24, 16.2, and 7 and 8, where it says, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer, right? 
So we get down to the end of this example here, and what is Paul's conclusion? What is his conclusion as we look at this example, this paradigm of looking back at the Old Testament in a Christ-centered way in order to meet the contemporary problems of meat sacrificed to idols in the Corinthian church? Well, here's what Paul's point is. Number one, there's a warning against boasting. And that was the issue in Corinth. Again, they were self-inflated and they were boasting, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And the Israelites were guilty of boasting in their own belief. And this is the warning for the Christians in Corinth. And by the way, it's the warning for us as well. This is the heart of the issue in the book. Think of yourselves as servants and not merely as exalting yourself over one another. And the second point that we see there is a reality check against temptation. You know, I don't I hope you didn't come to this lesson thinking I was going to come down to this particular passage there in chapter uh, 1 and verse 13 and spend all of my time there. But there Paul says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Right? Paul's point, if you understand the example of Israel, is this. Those in Corinth were not helpless to the temptations they faced. In fact, they had an example from the Old Testament that they could follow. And Christians are still in the world and susceptible to temptation. Therefore, going back to the end of chapter 9, self-control and discipline is still needed. And then the last lesson that we can draw from Paul's lesson here is this. A lesson in God's faithfulness. That's really what the point is in chapter 10 and verse 13. Notice it again. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And here it is. And God is faithful. Just as God continued to show himself faithful time and time and time again to Israel, even though they continued to struggle with idolatry, that's the point of strength for the Corinthians as well. That God is faithful. And if we are willing to do our part, he is willing to do his part to blunt the power that the temptation has over the Christian's life. Let me leave you just real quick with three takes that I thought about as I was producing this lesson. Number one, as teachers of the Word of God, we must properly contextualize the Old Testament Scriptures. We've got to learn to go back to those passages of Scripture and to learn how they speak to the contemporary issues that are facing our culture. Number two, we must form arguments against the idols that are camped out in our culture. We must form arguments against the idols that are camped out in our culture. You know, one of the things that I think I don't hear enough coming from the pulpit, and I'm pointing at myself here, is exposing the idols that are present in our culture today. And then thirdly, lastly, Contextualizing allows people to see scriptures as not merely application, but parts of the whole story. And in this sense, we as preachers and teachers of the Word of God are storytellers, connecting people's lives today with the lives of the people in scriptures. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, 
But I, I tend to be very analytical. I tend to be very problem-solution-oriented in, in my preaching and teaching sometimes. And what I mean from, by that is this, you know, I've got seven points about the problem, and then here's seven solutions. And here's the reality, right? Here's the reality. You know it. All but the two or three engineer-minded guys who are going, yes, a process, are sitting there going, he's got 14 points, forget about it. But if I can connect their lives to the stories of Scripture, people remember stories, don't they? People remember stories. So if we can learn those stories, if we can learn the biblical story, and we can, can learn to connect people's lives and the problems that they are facing with the story of Scripture, they will personalize it. And they'll take it to heart and they'll hold on to it. And when they face problems, whether it's meat sacrifice to idols or any of the numerous idols that are present in our culture today, they will remember they are not without an example. That in some significant way, their life, their story, is connected with the story of God's people in Scripture. And that will help them to overcome the problems that they're facing. I don't know if this lesson has been helpful to you this morning. It was helpful to me as I studied through it. I really appreciate the time um, that has been given to me this morning to look at this particular passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-13. through 13. I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much.